We thank you for this passage, God. It's a, it's a different um, type of character that we see in you, something that we're not always used to, or maybe something even we experience, but we don't understand, God. This encounter that you have with this Gentile woman, Lord, I pray that you would teach us through this, God, that we wouldn't have the wrong impression of why you responded or didn't respond the way that you did, Lord, but that you would um, just pierce our hearts and give us understanding of of some of the ways that you work, God. We're here because we want to know you on a deeper level, Lord. So I pray that through this passage, through this teaching, that you would be made, made known. In your name, amen. <clears throat> Continuing our study in Matthew chapter 15, be in verses 21 to 28. Let me ask you a question. Does God's lack of response to your prayers discourage you from praying? Meaning maybe you prayed something, maybe you asked something from the Lord specifically and he either didn't respond or he didn't respond the way that you liked. Do you allow that to prevent you from pursuing the Lord? See, so often we can uh, have this mentality that when we come to God and we ask God for something, and it might even be something that's that's so sincere like it is here in this story, uh, and, and God, He doesn't answer, and we can assume that He doesn't answer because He doesn't care. He doesn't answer because He's not concerned. And we can put this character quality on God that's not truly accurate to who He is, but regardless of how God responds to our prayers or doesn't respond to our prayers, we're called to pray and be purposed in prayer despite God's response, which brings me to the title of this teaching, Purposed in Prayer Despite Silence. Purposed in Prayer Despite Silence. We're going to learn... In this passage, what it means to be purposed in prayer, we, even when the Lord is silent, even when he doesn't respond the way that we would like him to respond. <clears throat> if you would, let's read this text real quick because it's a, a shorter section. Uh, we'll read it to get the full story and then we'll break it down. Matthew chapter 15 verse 21 says, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, oh, Lord, great. Oh, sorry. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, we know the end of the story, but I want to walk alongside the progression of this account because there's so many things that I believe the Lord is trying to get across to us. And let's start back in Matthew chapter 15, 
verses 21 and 22. It says this, Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So first off, it says that Jesus departed to Sire and Tyre and Sidon. Do we remember where Jesus is departing from? Where was he last? We talked about it in the last teaching. But if you look at that uh, earlier in the chapter, specifically the chapter before, we see that he was in the land of Gennesaret. Okay, so Gennesaret is about 50 miles away from the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is so awesome of Jesus. He's traveling so far constantly on foot. Why? To reach the lost, to minister to people that are in need. He's purposed to meet people where they're at and provide for their needs. He travels all the way to this place Tyre and Sidon, this region. Now, this region, it's a Gentile region. That's why it says here, and behold, a woman of Canaan came. The disciples are probably thinking like, what? Jesus, why, why are we going to this Gentile place? Is it your ministry for the Jews? Just like they question, hey, why are we going through Samaria? But Jesus has a specific purpose, a specific reason, and every single thing that he does. And we'll see in this text that he has multiple reasons for why he's doing what he's doing. So this woman is of Canaan. Why is that important? Because the Canaanites were enemies of the Jews. Remember, if you've ever read or studied the book of Joshua, that was Joshua's mission. After Moses died, Joshua was called to rid the promised land of who? Of the Canaanites, right? But we see he didn't completely fulfill that mission. And there's people that were left over. But these people have been enemies of the Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years. So Jesus, he's essentially entering into enemy territory. And this is probably throwing the disciples off. Now, the first thing that we see happens here is this woman comes to him. Now, if you know anything about the culture of that day, this is wrong on all aspects, okay? First of all, rabbis weren't supposed to engage in conversations or anything with a woman in a public setting. Okay, and Jesus is considered a rabbi. He's teaching in the synagogues constantly. Not only is this woman approaching him, she's a Gentile. So on every uh, accord, in every scenario, this would be wrong traditionally. Okay, but remember, we talked about this last sermon that Jesus breaks tradition. He's not concerned with these man-made traditions. He's concerned with fulfilling the will that his father is leading him in. So he's going to, as we've read, have a conversation with this woman. Now, this woman, look what she does here. She cries out to Jesus She's in a place of broken dependence. She's expressing humility and she's literally praying to Jesus. She's crying out to God. She's crying out to Jesus. And look at what she says right off the bat. She says, have mercy on me. Look at the title that she gives him. Oh, Lord, son of David. Now. At first glance, we can look at that and say, yeah, yeah, his name's Lord, his name's son of David. She's she's speaking to him on on terms that he should uh, uh, respond to, if you will. But we have to remember this woman is a Gentile. 
Okay, the son of David, that was uh, a name for the what? Jewish Messiah. He was of the son of David. So what she's doing here, she's responding to him or calling out to him with a name that doesn't really apply to her as a Gentile woman. Now, why is she saying, Lord, son of David? We don't know for sure, but in all likelihood, we have to remember this message of the gospel, all these works and miracles that Jesus had been doing, it's spreading and it's spreading rapidly. Likely, she probably had heard of someone else saying, Oh, Lord, son of David, help me with this thing. Heal my leprosy, whatever it was. And Jesus responded to that. So what she's doing is she's using a specific name that she thinks Jesus is going to respond to. And he's going to give her clarity. Hey, I'm not called to the Gentiles. I'm called to the Jews. There's implication there that this is, again, this is a Jewish name for Jesus. But she has like a, she's trying to get something out of Jesus. Oh, Lord, son of David, my daughter, she's severely demon possessed. But nevertheless, her daughter, we see, is actually severely demon possessed. And I want to commend this woman for many things. But this specific thing, she's coming to Jesus because she's recognizing she has no other hope but him. Okay. If you had a, a family member or a friend that was sick, you would probably do whatever you could to restore that family member, right? To bring them the proper uh, medication or the proper uh, medical attention that they needed, right? For someone that you love, specifically a daughter, a child, you would do anything that you could to make sure that they were over this specific thing. Now, this is not just a sickness. This is a demon possession. Now, if your son or your daughter, if you thought they were demon possessed, which some of you probably do think your children are demon possessed, they're pro- they probably aren't in all likelihood. They could be, I don't know. But you would probably do whatever you could to get rid of that demon or call the right people to come take care of the demon, right? So this lady, she's probably out of options, but she recognizes that Jesus is standing in front of her and he's her only option. She's putting her hope in him. Now look what happens in Matthew chapter 15, verse 23, that first part says, but he answered her, not a word. What? She's in desperate need. She's expressing humility. She calls him Lord. And Jesus doesn't respond to her. Why does he not care? Does he not care about her situation? Does he not care about her or her daughter? At first glance, it might seem, wait, God, why wouldn't you respond to this? Are you not concerned with this situation? I thought you cared about the broken and the possessed and the people that are in need of healing. I thought that's why you came. Why aren't you responding to this situation? We'll see that even though he's silent, he is deeply concerned about her need, which brings me to the first of fifth points. Don't mistake his silence for his lack of concern. Don't mistake his silence for his lack of concern. See, throughout scripture, we see different reasons why God doesn't respond to our 
prayers. And I just want to talk about two of them. Sometimes we pray prayers that we shouldn't pray. Sometimes God is silent because he's expressing grace toward us. Sometimes his silence is his grace. Sometimes we ask for things that we shouldn't be asking. You ever prayed a prayer that God didn't answer and later on in life you realized, thank you God for not answering that prayer. Has anyone ever prayed for a specific girl or a specific guy to be their future wife or husband? And now you're sitting here today and that ain't the person you were praying about. You're like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. Thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. Sometimes we pray things that God shouldn't answer. Maybe it's about a specific job and you're like, God, I really want this job. Give me this job. And he doesn't say anything because you weren't supposed to have that job. Or maybe he you're praying about moving to a specific location and he's silent because he doesn't want you to move to that specific location. Sometimes we ask God for things that are contrary to his will and it can frustrate us in the moment. But later on in life, when we look back and see, hey, man, praise God for not answering that thing. I know why he was silent and his silence was his grace. His silence was his love toward me. I'm grateful that he didn't answer that prayer. But in context, context, we also have to recognize that his lack of an answer is not always an answer. Just because he doesn't answer or doesn't respond doesn't mean that that's an answer in and of itself. Silence doesn't always mean no. Okay, When God's silent about things, it doesn't always mean no. There's certain reasons why God is silent. And one of those reasons, as we see here in this text, is he's trying to produce something in this woman. Sometimes he's silent just because he wants us to continue to seek him. How often do you pray for something and God answers that prayer and uh, then your prayer life starts slacking a little bit? It's like, man, God bless me. Oh, thank you, God. Yeah, in the beginning, everything's great. And then some time goes on. Life is good. And wait a minute, but I haven't really been praying until what? Until the next hardship comes? Until the next time you need something? And we get into this relationship with God that's not really his heart, that's contrary to his word. Sometimes he doesn't answer us just because he wants us to seek deeper relationship with him. Sometimes there's a specific character quality that he's trying to produce in us. Sometimes he's producing a specific character quality attached to our prayer life, as we'll discuss in a little bit, but he's teaching her about being persistent in prayer, but being about persistent in her pursuit of him generally. And he's silent for a specific reason. So we need to be very careful about how we interpret God's silence. It's not always the answer no. Sometimes it is the answer no. But we have to be extremely discerning in pursuing the Lord. God, you haven't answered this prayer for this loved one to get saved or this thing or that thing. And God's like, hey, I, I, I have my reasons. And through prayer and through our pursuit of him, as we see in the story, eventually he'll reveal to us why he didn't answer us. In Matthew chapter 15, that second part of verse 23 says, And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. Does this remind you of anything? 
Do you remember back in the last, well, actually still this chapter, um, sorry, the last chapter in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus led the disciples on their vacation, but he led them right to a multitude and you had 5,000 plus people there waiting for Jesus, waiting for the disciples. And they were indeed, Jesus healed them. He spoke the word to them. And then the disciples said, hey, send them away so that they can get food. And she said, no, 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 you feed them. Now, again, in the very next chapter, the disciples are saying, send this woman away. Another person in need, and they're doing the same exact thing. They're falling back into the thing that Jesus just taught them in the last chapter. They're making the same mistake again. In Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11, it says this. It's so weird, but it's so true. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. We have this tendency to return back to our old foolish ways. We have this tendency to not learn the lesson the first time when God corrects us about something or he teaches us something like he is teaching the disciples about compassion, like he was just teaching them about compassion. In the chapter before, we have this tendency to fall back into the same thing. And the author of this proverb, likely Solomon Inspired by the Spirit, says we're like dogs that return to their vomit. Anybody have a dog here? You ever see your dog return to its vomit? It's so gross, right? And you look at that and you're disgusted, right? You're like, dude, there's a reason why you threw that up. Why are you eating it? You're just going to throw it up again. Like, what are you thinking? But that's how God's looking at us. And he's like, what are you, you're eating your throw up. Why are you eating your throat? That's so gross. We can look at the dog and be like, why would you do that? But God's saying, you do the same thing. That's the same thing that you do when you return to your folly, when you return to your old ways, when you continue to make the same mistakes and commit the same sin over and over and over again. Thank God for his grace. Jesus, he's continuing to teach the disciples this lesson about compassion, but we can learn from their mistakes and purpose to learn the lesson the first time. Don't continue to fall back in the same sinful lifestyle or that specific sin that you can't overcome. Don't fall back into it. Christ has freed us from that. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul specifically, he's speaking about the law and the bondage of the law, but practically it applies to us in any sin that we choose to turn back to. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Why do we choose to put the yoke back on our shoulders? Why do we choose to bear the weight of our own sin when he bore it on the cross already? He freed us from it, but we have this thing in us. We're like dogs returning to our vomit. The disciples were the same way, but it's time to move past that. It's time to press on. It's time to move forward. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 to 14 he says not that i have already attained or am already perfected 
but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the reality that we aren't perfect, everyone in here knows that you're not perfect. I certainly am not perfect, but we can't let that be an excuse for us to not pursue perfection. We're called to press on. Now we know there may be slip ups, there may be setbacks along the way, but we can't give up. We're called not to give up. Even if we fall back into that thing that we thought we overcame, we can't allow that slip up to lead us to a place of self-condemnation. Because it's really easy to be like, man, I've been trying to get over this specific sin issue my whole Christian walk, and it's still there. And we can let that lead us to a place of helplessness and hopelessness. And man, I'm never going to overcome this thing. But that's absolutely not true. In fact, the Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that God is going to complete the work in you. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So as we press on, we can be confident that he's going to finish that work in us. He's going to see too that we end up being made perfect. Now, might not happen till he comes back again, but he's determined to do that work in each of us. We can be confident that he won't give up on us, even if we slip up, even if we fall back into that same thing like these disciples are doing. See, when you look at some of these disciples, it's pretty encouraging. Okay, you look at John. All right, John struggled with anger throughout the Gospels. He's him and James try to call fire down on the Samaritans. John had a problem with anger, but you know what? Christian uh, history, the early Christian church tells us that that John was considered the apostle of love. That took a long time to make him the apostle of love. It wasn't just one day Jesus called him. He was the apostle of love. Peter's one of these disciples too, right? Peter struggled with everything. He was prideful. He was legalistic. He continued to struggle. He denied the Lord. He repented. But then even in ministry, we see him falling back into legalism. And Paul corrects him in Galatians chapter 1 verse 2 for falling back into that same thing that he had been falling back into. Paul rebukes him for making the Gentiles feel like they're not allowed to be apart, like the Jews and the Gentiles were still separate. But that's not what grace is to teach us. So Peter, he falls back into the same thing. God is continuing to do that work in him even while he's in ministry. And then you look at Paul. Now, Paul's not one of the disciples here. He's sent out later by Jesus. But you look at Paul's life, and he was he was a, a persecutor, a blasphemer. He had Christians killed. Like, he's the worst of the worst. And then it wasn't just on the road to Damascus. Yes, transformation happened, but it was a process. When you look at the book of Acts, it wasn't for another 14 years that Paul really was, um, really did a work in ministry. He tried to do ministry. 
the book of Acts tells us, but there wasn't a lot of fruit. God had to do a work in him for 14 years. We know part of that he's studying um, in different areas and he's pursuing the Lord, but it wasn't just like Acts 9 happens and Paul is the apostle Paul that we know and love. No, it took a long time to make him the man that we read about in the scriptures, the epistles that we know are inspired by God and inspire our lives. So if you are in that place and you fall back into the same thing. One, you are in good company, okay? But two, we should learn from their mistakes and purpose to get the lesson the first time. Don't fall back into the same thing. We don't need to do that. He's freed us from that. It's a choice to do that if we want to, but let's not want to. Let's press on and continue in the progression of our faith that God's called us to. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. So first Jesus is silent, and this is his second response. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Really? First you don't respond, and then this is what you say, Jesus? See, she wants Jesus to help her daughter, but he's called to help Israel. Brings me to the second point. His priorities might not be your priorities. His priorities might not be your priorities. Now, in context, he's speaking of the fact that he's called to minister to the house of Israel. That was his call. He's the shepherd. They're all like lost sheep, not having a shepherd. His ministry was primarily focused on the house of Israel, the the Jews. And we've talked about this before. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter one, verse 16. He says to the Jew first and also for the Greek, speaking of the power of the gospel message. The gospel message was to be presented to the Jewish nation first because there's so many promises attached to that. And then when they rejected the Messiah, when they said, nah, you're not the Messiah I was looking for. Now the opportunity for the gospel to be presented to the Gentiles. Now that happens. Now, Jesus, he has a few interactions with Gentiles, but they're very few. It doesn't happen many times. I think he does it to open the apostles eyes that, hey, this is something that you're going to be doing. So get used to this breaking tradition thing and being able to talk to women that are Gentiles and these people that you think are enemies of you because they're eventually going to become part of your family. So I think he has a specific reason for this. But I want to talk about prayer just a little bit as far as his priorities uh, might not be your priorities. His priority in prayer might not be your priority in prayer. How many of you will pray for future direction? Come on, there's more of you than that. See, we might be praying, God, reveal your will to me. What's the direction you have for me in the future? But his priority is not to communicate to you what the future direction for you is. His priority is to purge you of sin and mold you and shape you for the character needed to fulfill the mission that he has for you in the future. So we get so caught up in the future. We all do it. Oh God, what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, I'm going to plan my week next week, next month. We're talking about a mission trip that's six months from now. Who knows? The Lord could come back before that. But we have this tendency to 
plan so far ahead and pray for God to show us what the future holds. And it's not a bad thing, but that might not be his priority for you. See, you might be praying about, God, I I want this new job. I want a different job. I want, there's this opportunity that came up. God, I really want this thing. And God, hey, um, I'm trying to use you in the job that you have now. Or another one, it might be, I'm praying for the specific loved one to be changed. They're struggling with their walk with the Lord. And maybe it's a son or maybe it's a daughter or a grandpa or an uncle or a wife or whatever, husband. And you're praying, God, change. I want you to do that work in them. Lord, they're, they're acting in this certain way. And I know it's contrary to your will. God, do that work in them. And not that that's a bad prayer, but God might be waiting. Because God might be using that person to change you. And there, he's allowing you to see those things so that maybe he's teaching you a deeper level of kindness. Maybe he's trying to teach you patience. Maybe he's trying to take you to a deeper understanding of what biblical love actually looks like. And we can say, God, I thought you wanted to do this transforming work in them. And that may be true, but his timeline's different than our timeline. His priority might be to, hey, yeah, that's going to happen, but I need to do this work in you and I'm using them to change you. If you don't have them, you're not going to change in the way that I want you to and you're not going to be prepared for the future that you keep asking about. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 15, verse 25. Then she came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. I love this. He responds to her the way he does, and then she worships him. And from this act of worship, we're going to see God eventually respond. See, we can call him Lord or Yahweh or Yeshua or Son of David or whatever name you want to call the Lord. But until we worship him like he's Lord, we can't expect him to treat us like his children. See, she's now actually, she doesn't just say, put a name on it. She's actually worshiping him like he's Lord. And she's choosing to worship him, even though he was just ignoring her. Which brings me to the third point. Choose to worship him despite his response. Choose to worship him despite his response. When things don't go the way that you want them to go, do you still choose to worship God? When you feel like God's not listening or he doesn't give you the response that you like, do you say, eh, all right, God, you're not doing for me what I want, so I'm not, I'm not going to do for you what you want. I'm going to stop worshiping you. Is your worship of God conditional? Yeah, God, I'll worship you if you, if you bless me, if you do these things, if you give me a good life or whatever. Our worship can't be contingent upon whether he's answering our prayers exactly the way that we would like him to. Because that's attached to an an idea and a concept that he's not answering my prayers or he's not responding the way that I like him to because he doesn't care. But that's contrary to who God is. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. God is a God of love. He's our father. We're his children. He desperately cares for you, intimately cares for you. 
It's just our interpretation that leads us to this place that, oh, we get bitter and resentful towards God because things aren't panning out the way that we thought they would or the way that we liked. Now, this woman, she's not only worshiping him, she's not taking no for an answer. She's like, he just basically uh, didn't answer her. And then he says, I'm called to the lost chief of Israel, not you. And what does she do? She continues to worship him. She continues to cry out to him. She continues to pray to him, which brings me to the fourth point. Persistence in prayer pays off. Persistence in prayer pays off. Now, this is the character quality that he was trying to produce in her amongst others. He yeah, it's good that she's praying, but he's trying to produce this persistence in prayer. This is extremely important to the Lord when it comes to prayer. A great example is in Luke chapter 11. He tells us this other story to teach the disciples about prayer. Now, in context, we see the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach me how to pray of all things, not teach me how to heal, not teach me how to teach, teach me how to pray. There was something so powerful, something so amazing about the Lord's prayer life. So he goes through the Lord's prayer, teaching them uh, basically an outline of what prayer should look like. And then he gives them an illustration or a mini parable to get the character quality needed to really pray the way Jesus prayed. And this character quality was persistence. But he tells the story like this in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. He says, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. Do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now, in this story, Jesus isn't saying he's the other friend that has the loaves in if you annoy him long enough, it's not that he gets annoyed with our prayer lives. That's not the message that he's trying to get across to us, okay? The story is like this. Essentially, you have this man that has a friend come over, and we have to remember that culture culturally, uh, hospitality was so important, even to this day over there. If somebody came and they were in need, you had to take care of them. You had to feed them. You had to house them, the whole deal, sometimes for several days on end. So this guy unexpectedly comes to his house. This wasn't poor planning. It wasn't like this guy like didn't have the means to take care of his family. No, it was this unexpected visitor that came. Now, this man, he has his friend come. He doesn't have what he needs to provide for him. Hospitality is important to him. So he goes to his other friend that knows that he knows has the means to provide for this guy. So he goes to his other friend. He says, hey, I need three loaves to, to provide for my unexpected visitor. Will you help me out? And guy's like, dude, my kids are sleeping. This ain't the, this ain't a good time. And so Jesus says, regardless of whether they're friends or not, he won't answer him or provide those loaves for him just because they're friends. But if he keeps asking in the middle of the night, eventually he's like, dude, I want to go to bed. I'm just going to give you these loaves so that you'll leave me alone. And it's this character quality that Jesus is trying to teach us about being persistent in prayer. There are certain prayers that God doesn't answer the first time or the fifth time or the hundredth time. But if he hasn't said no, then we shouldn't stop praying. 
if those prayers line up with his will, with his character. Because we've already established that when he does, when he, his silence doesn't always mean no. Okay. So this is what he's getting across to us. She's persisting in prayer and he's going to respond to her prayer. And this is just the heart of how we're called to pray. Just like that man, just like this woman in humble desperation, realizing he's our only hope and he's the only one that can provide for this thing that we need. Now, remember, she's not asking for like a new car or a new house or a new job. I'm not saying any of those things are bad in certain circumstances, but she's asking for her daughter to be healed. This is a, a prayer that honors God. She's deeply concerned for another individual. This is an expression of love towards others. And God says, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to answer this prayer. And we see him answer the prayer in a couple verses, but look at this next response. Verse 26, but he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Wow. If I called you guys a bunch of little dogs, how would you respond? Probably wouldn't come to church here anymore, right? Like, that's like harsh, right? It's not like the Jesus we like to see all the time. That's not like comforting, compassionate, loving Jesus. But is it? It is. It is loving Jesus. It's tough love. See, tough love is still love. Jesus is manifesting his love through a different way. His love always doesn't look the same. Sometimes we think God's love looks like a nice, comfortable, easy life with plenty of blessings and plenty of finances and plenty of friends and plenty of family members. But that's not necessarily biblical. He does do that sometimes, but not all the time. Sometimes God's love is expressed through discipline. Sometimes God's love is expressed through trial. Sometimes God's love is expressed through hardship and tribulation. Sometimes God's love is expressed through turning your whole world upside down. Now, this again is not the response that we like to see from the Lord, but he's trying to teach her a valuable lesson. It's not that he loves her any more or any less. He loves her so much, but he has to teach her something, but not only her. Remember who else is here? The disciples. The disciples are here. You remember they tried to send her away. So this lesson is just as much for this woman as it is for the disciples. He's trying to teach them so many different things. Again, he's trying to teach them compassion. He's trying to teach them about prayer. He's trying to teach them about faith. We'll see he's going to try to teach them about entitlement and contentment and gratefulness and all these different things. So there's a method to his madness, if you will. He's responding in this way, not just for the woman and testing her, but he's teaching the disciples. Look what happens in Matthew chapter 15, verse 27. Look at this response from her. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. This is an epic response. Okay, I'm fine with you calling me a little dog. Even the little dogs eat the scraps. Even the little dogs eat the crumbs. Even the little dogs eat the breadcrumbs that fall from the master's table. She responds with utter humility and again, desperation. She's completely okay with the crumbs. Are you okay with the crumbs? Are you okay with the breadcrumbs? I'm not talking about don't eat dinner tonight and whatever falls from the table, eat that. I'm talking about, about spiritually as it pertains to blessings because the implication, the picture that 
Jesus and this woman is painting here is there's Jesus is sitting there at a feast. Maybe this feast is with the children of Israel. And we know that Gentiles were referred to as little dogs. But this statement for little dogs is not really uh, like a, a little stray dog. Like he's softening it up a little bit. He's calling her like a little pet dog. Okay, and how she responds, I'm okay with being a little dog. Can I just have the crumbs that fall from the master's table? Until we're grateful for the breadcrumbs, we won't be ready to sit at his table. Which brings me to the fifth point. Be grateful for breadcrumbs. Be grateful for breadcrumbs. Do you recognize the blessing in a breadcrumb? I'm not talking about an actual breadcrumb spiritually here. Do you count your breadcrumb blessings? Every little blessing, anything and everything that the Lord has provided for you. See, it's easy to get distracted by what we don't have. But how often do you consider and thank God for what you do have? When we look at just the little things that God has blessed us with, and we can start with salvation, regardless of what happens to us in this life, we have a blessing promised to us that transcends this life, regardless of our situations and circumstances, regardless of how God chooses to bless us on this earth, we should be grateful with simply the blessing of salvation. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Um, there's a few other translations that communicate it like this. Um, he's going to say, be graceful in the New King James. But I want to read uh, this translation. Hebrews 12, 28. He says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be grateful. Think about that. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're receiving a promise as believers that cannot be taken away. Anytime I begin to complain about my circumstances or I had a rough week or a rough day, I love to think about and consider verses like this. Like, dude, what are you complaining about? You're going to heaven. Like everything that happens in this life, it's but a vapor. It's just temporary. You get heaven. What are you so worried about? I'm convinced that when we get to heaven and we look back on, maybe we don't, but just follow me. Look back on all the complaining that we did on this earth. We're going to be like, oh my gosh, we're so foolish. Like, what the heck? That was just like a little like dot in time. And we were so worried about like how hard or how easy we had it in this world. And then heaven came. If we would have just really realized what we were getting when we accepted the Lord and we were promised heaven, it's like there's nothing to complain about. That's all the grace that we need. See, when we view our lives through the lens of our salvation, then we tend to appreciate the little things in life. Everything beyond salvation is just another extra breadcrumb blessing. And sometimes it's a feast, but we got to learn to, hey, Dude, be grateful with the little things that God... Hey, you guys are all here. You all got clothes. That's one thing, okay? Praise God that you came here with clothes, all right? No, seriously, though. It's like we we count so many uh, things in our lives. It's just like, uh, we're entitled to that. We're sons of God. But it's like, no, no, no. Anything beyond salvation is just extra, extra grace that he doesn't owe us. Our jobs, our family, our friends, this building, everything. And when we look at that and we focus 
man, God, what you did for me, how much you loved me, filter our lives and our blessings through the lens of salvation. It's like, man, I have, I have nothing to complain about. Matthew chapter 15, verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Wow, totally different response, right? See, this is the one story in the Gospels that Jesus commends a person personally about their faith. We know the centurion servant, we talked about that in Matthew chapter 9, but he's commending him publicly, okay, the centurion. This person, this woman, he's commending her faith to face for her faith. He's giving us a story of what it means to be faithful. See, he tested this woman's faith and she passed the test. When he didn't respond, when he responded two times the way that she didn't like, she continued to worship him. She continued to seek him. She continued to cry out to him and he ultimately blessed her. Now, remember, this lesson isn't just for This Gentile woman, the disciples are there too. And he's trying to teach all these things to them as well. He's trying to teach them about faith. He keeps questioning them about why they're doubting, right? He was just doing that in the last chapter. He's trying to teach them what it means to be faithful and pursue him in a way that... um, that has the character attributes of diligence and persistence and all these different things. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, 6, it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, we just got a new definition of diligence in this text. That looks like diligence despite his silence. That looks like diligence despite his response that we really don't want to hear. That looks like diligence despite his offensiveness towards us, calling us little dogs even. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, we can't give up praying just because he's silent or just because he doesn't respond the way we think he should his silence as we discussed his silence it doesn't always mean no sometimes it means yes he might be silent just to produce that persistence in you because that's his heart that you would diligently seek him regardless of the blessings that he bestows on you yes he wants to bless you but that's secondary more than that he wants an intimate relationship with you and that comes through seeking him diligently and there's a promise attached to that in hebrews eleven six, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him We don't always know what that reward is going to be. It could be a material thing. It could be a practical thing. Most likely, most often, it's a spiritual thing. But he can bless us however he wants. But we know one thing. If we diligently pursue him, if we don't give up, even when he doesn't respond, or even when he gives us a response that we don't like, he's going to reward us. It's not a matter of if, because it's a promise. It's a matter of when. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. This passage, God, you're, you're so awesome, Lord. And I'm, I'm so grateful that those, um, that last verse is in there. God, because you rewarded her, Lord, and you healed her daughter. 
God. And there was a reason for why you were silent. There was a reason for why you responded the way that you did. God, and I pray that we would be people that diligently seek you even when we don't see the reward or even when you don't respond to us. God, that um, we would know you're going to reward us, but we wouldn't pursue you for the future uh, rewards, God. We would just pursue you because you've already given us the reward of our salvation. Lord, you've done enough already. So we, we love you for that, God. We thank you in your name. Amen.